I'm Sean O'Banion. And I'm Shannon Mullen. This is Character. Conversation about actors, their craft, and some of their unforgettable roles in movies we love. In this episode, our guest is a performer who disappears into every role he plays to the point that you may not know you're watching the same person. And that's despite the fact that he's a very distinctive looking human being. I mean, striking physicality, just an iconic voice. In his long career in film so far, he's played everything from a New York mafioso to a British lord, a doomed prince, uh, like every kind of villain. And he's either been nominated for or won some of the most respected awards, both in the theater world and in film and television. Also happens just to be an incredibly kind and decent and generous human being. Mark Strong, welcome to Character. It's very lovely to be talking to you. <laughs> lovely. Lovely to have you. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for joining us. Yeah. So this show is really about talking to actors who have made an impact on us mm-hmm. um, through the roles that they've played. Your credit list is is pretty insane. You have, I think it's 62 feature credits, almost 40 television credits, in, including the series that, that you're on and producing now with your wife. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really, we just want to dive into a, a few of those. Uh, for me, 2008's Body of Lies was the role that sort of made me sit up and and take note. I had seen you before, but didn't realize you were the same person. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great compliment. And just for anyone who hasn't seen the film, uh, Body of Lies is is about a CIA agent, a field agent played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is in Jordan hunting a terrorist at the behest of his boss, played by Russell Crowe. And he comes into contact with a man named Hani Salam, who's the head of the Jordanian intelligence service, played by Mark. When I had that realization that you were the same guy that I had seen in Syriana a few years earlier, mm-hmm. and I hadn't seen Stardust by that point, um, it you just immediately became like, I'm going to have to keep track of this guy. <laughs> and the performance of Hani we were looking at the script and there's very little on the page by way of introduction. Yeah. He's a, so he, he, all we're given is that we're in, we're in a room. It's the screenplay says the long room is decorated with portraits of Jordan's King. Hani is cool, lustrous black hair, beautiful tailoring, polished shoes. He's chief of Jordan's general intelligence directorate and Ormolu clock ticks. That's all. That's all you're given. You know, the, the, the thing is it's, it's what you're, surroundings are that are very important i mean we were we were filming that in morocco and they had uh, the set decorator made an incredible environment for 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 us all to work in but i felt it really helped me transform myself from being a boy from london to a you know the the head of the jordanian secret service which incidentally is casting that I'm not sure whatever happened today. I think, you know, you would find an Arabic performer to play that part. But I've always felt that transformation is the most interesting part of acting. Ever since I was at drama school, I didn't want to play the, the juve leads, you know, the, the, the leading young men roles who were just really designed to fall in love, you know, as Ryan Reynolds once said, to throw a punch, crack a smile, kiss the girl, those kind of parts. <laughs> I was always much more interested in anything that could remove me from myself because then I felt that was acting. And if that was an accent, a piece of costume, a nationality, uh, a state of mind, whatever it was, I felt like then I was acting. I've never been that comfortable playing anything close to myself. So Hani Salam in Body of Lies was an absolute godsend. And it's extraordinary to me even now to think that Gina Jay, the casting director, when given that part on the page thought that I would be in any way suitable, but it came together really well. If I remember correctly, we went for a little bit of gray in the hair. Yeah, a little bit of gray. Perfectly salt and pepper, yes. And I yeah. think you had in, in some scenes like a little bit of like a five o'clock shadow thing. Yes, that's right, that's right. Your physicality in this role, Mark, I wanted to ask you about because you, when I was reading about your background, you said that you, you've always been very inspired by the physical comedy of um, you know Lee, Lee Evans and that you used to watch yeah. Jerry Lewis as a kid. Yeah. And yet in this role, in every role that we're going to talk to you about today, with the exception of Stardust, you're very still and you, don't, you have no wasted movement. 
And it's so interesting to me what you can do within that extremely limited range. You bring so much presence to these characters. How do you do it? Is it, <laughs> is it deliberate? Well, yes, I suppose it is because, you know, there are a number of paths you can go down when you're building a character. I remember the principal of our drama school said, um, you've just got to watch what people are doing, you know, not just uh, performances on stage, but performances in film. And you have to decide what kind of actor you want to be. You have to decide for yourself what resonates with you, because there are some people who love that physical, bold performance style and they're really good at it and people really enjoy watching it. It's just about taste. And I just felt much more comfortable in the area of, of, of being as still and as, as, as quiet as possible in order to have people leaning forwards in their seats and wondering what was going on in my character's head rather than, rather than displaying it, which is kind of unusual when you think that I train for the stage. And the stage is almost the opposite of film. You have to broadcast out to the audience Whereas on film, the camera is almost like a, a microscope looking into your soul. Going back for a second to what you said about sort of this, the set design, that obviously, you know, the first time that we see Hani, we're not in what we would normally expect, you know, the type of office that we would expect from that sort of scenario. In other words, you know, it doesn't feel like an office. It's actually a conference room. There's a big glass wall. Mm. Um, at, at which you can see sort of a patio. And I think at one point you go outside with Leo and you're drinking tea. How does that then, you know, when you show up and you see that, that, that this is what, um, you know, Ridley and uh, I'm not sure I'm presuming John T. Yates came up with, how does that influence that scene and that moment? Well, every day when you turn up on set uh, somewhere, that you haven't seen, the first thing I do is just look around and make sure that that fits with how I perceive my character to be. And I'll often talk to the art directors who are there that day and just say, I'm not sure that is exactly right. Or is there any possibility that we could have something else here? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely interact with them because if you're trying to deliver a performance of an individual, you've got to also be supported by what's around you. And it's interesting you mentioned Janty Yates because there's a great story behind Body of Lies, which was that you could have cast an Arab character to play an Anglophile, but they went the other way and decided to cast an Englishman, you know, with elements of Arabic. So when it came time to clothing, Hani, Janty was adamant he should be in Savile Row, classic British styling. Mm. That was her choice. And we went to um, Huntsman, which is um, uh, a shop on Savile Row. And it just so happened as we were trying things on that one of their customers, and they're famously tight-lipped about who they make suits for, but I think they'd, they'd made a number of suits for an Arabic customer who hadn't come along to collect them for some reason. And they'd been in the cellar wow. for a few years. And they, and they, I think they'd been paid for, but the chap had never picked them up. And they fitted perfectly. <laughs> and so suddenly we, we had this, this choice for, from 20 to 30 suits. And they let me oh wear those. And that's why God. Hani looks as amazing as he wow. does, because he's wearing the genuine article. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, and his, am, am, <laughs> am I, maybe you don't remember, am I correct in thinking at least at one point he has a turtleneck on even? Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like a mock neck. I remember yeah. it. Yeah. Like a, like a cashmere <laughs> yeah. turtleneck. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, I mean, obviously, you know, you have a lot of different looks in, in all these different movies, whether it's, you know, long hair, short hair, Hani's sort of like, you know, longer hair, but with the grayish. Do you find your characters early on sort of on your own or do you think that it, that it's in the selection of the costume and in the selection of the hair and makeup that that you sort of discover who they are i don't know how other people work but for me it's a layering process you know it literally starts with reading the script and getting a sense of what the story is what kind of story is being told what kind of character you're playing and then it's just a process of adding layer upon layer so you you look at the way he speaks you look at the relationships he has with the people in the in the film and then you look at what he's going to wear and then you look at you know how his hair is going to be and then you look at whether you know he has stubble and definitely those things are all part of the layering process that end up with you arriving at the character and that's topped off by you know how the wardrobe uh, person helps you with your costume and how the the set designer has created the environment in which your character lives and works. 
And all of those things add up, I suppose, till the day when they turn over the camera and you've got everything in place. And then you just deliver what you feel you've built. I would love to ask you about the political element of that role. Yeah. Um, because the next film we're going to talk about, um, you know, it, 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 there are some similarities in terms of subject matter to Zero Dark Thirty, which is coming up. Um, but this film, Body of Lies, was made in 2008, um, adapted from the David Ignatius novel in 2007. So where the world was in terms of the conflict in the Middle East, mm-hmm. how that played into your preparation for this role, if it did. Well, Body of Lies seemed to come at the end of a kind of quite a number of movies that had been dealing with with the Middle East and ongoing problems there. I mean, in the Valley of Elah and Rendition, and just to name a couple. And I think they were they were sort of around the same time as Body of Lies. So it was a very difficult sell. I originally thought because I I just wondered whether people were fed up with stories about the Middle East and about the problems that America was having with that part of the world. Uh, but I think. The dynamic of it being a kind of thriller was more important than anything it had to say, particularly about the Middle East. I think it was much more about the relationship between Russell Crowe's character as, as Leonardo DiCaprio's handler and, and Leo being put into a situation in a country where he was basically left to his own devices. And in that country was a character that you'd been told or were expected to believe would be you know, some kind of terrible villain who is actually a very suave, sophisticated, rather loyal person. Yeah, fingernail puller is what we're told before you appear and then yeah. and then you appear and you're you seem yeah. anything but. And you've played a fingernail puller before. <laughs> I have indeed played a fingernail puller, yes. Um, <laughs> that, that was a very brutal scene in Syriana where I had to sort of beat uh, George Clooney uh, to a pulp, basically, and he's strapped to a chair and it's a very memorable scene, but I think, yeah. again, politically, the purpose of that scene was to show just what a battering America was getting from a country and a region that it didn't completely mm. understand. Yeah. Well, going back to your relationship, um, are, are you drawing attention to Leo and Russell Crowe's characters, re- the relationship between the, between those two being sort of central to the film? First of all, Russell Crowe annoyed the hell out of me in this movie. His performance was great because he really pissed me off again and again. I just He just got under my skin. But the relationship between your character and Leo's was what, frankly, kept me watching around the corners, looking at what's going to happen with this. Yeah. Where's this going to go? You know, I mean, I, it, you you were just magnetic. Anytime you were on screen, I was more interested in what was happening, you know, and where oh, that yes. relationship was going to go. That's very kind of you. But politically, obviously, the statement that Ridley's making with that, that movie is that our supposed heroes, i.e. Russell's character, aren't the ones who turn out to be the ones that we like, you know, and our <laughs> supposed enemies turn out to be the mm. ones that we actually have an enormous amount of respect for. And just on a, on a practical level, what I always admired about Leo DiCaprio in that film was that the potential was there because he was such a massive, or is such a massive A-lister in terms of the movies, that he might not be able to, and I've sometimes come across this with American actors in the past, is that they, they're not able to play low status. So very difficult to give the status away because your culture, American culture is, and this is a little simplistic, but it's not untrue, is revolves around the hero. And whereas our culture, you could argue, is totally um, accepting of villains. We have Richard III, we have Coriolanus, you know, we're we're happy with our villains. Whereas I think um, American culture is much more built on the, you know, the homecoming king, the, the quarterback of the football team. It's much more about winning and being the hero. Whereas Leo, he played low status. He gave Harney the status in that movie. And I was incredibly impressed with huh. him because of that. And you mentioned villainy. That's so interesting. I never really considered that. I mean, because you talk you talk a bit about villainy and you sort of joke about it because you get that question a lot I've seen in the press you've done. Yeah. And at one point you said, well, yeah, you know, villainy can for us, it's the path to Hollywood. Yeah. Um, you know, but why do you why do you think that is? What is that all about? If we can just get psychological for a second there. <laughs> why Americans have such a you know, why do we import our villains? <laughs> well, I think there's a number of reasons. There's a number of, I think the sound of the speech, the lang- you know, the, the way we speak is exotic. It's, it's obviously not American. It's British. It's clipped. It's different. Also, 
the chances are if actors are successful in the US, you'll have seen them over the years, maybe even as child actors, whereas sometimes the Brits are parachuted in. So when <laughs> Alan Rickman was in Die Hard, you'd never seen him before, yeah. you know, mm. or, or um, uh, Jeremy Irons, you know, when he was sort of parachuted in, you'd never seen him before. So I think that's another thing is that we're not people that you were necessarily familiar with. But I do genuinely believe that part of it is this idea that we, in our theatrical tradition, embrace evil the villains <laughs> richard iii is the archetypal villain you know who basically looks out to the audience and says okay i'm going to do something really evil now watch this and then goes and does it um and then you have like i say uh coriolanus you have macbeth you have uh, a number of uh of characters and the the exploration of their psychology um is what's interesting I think, to us. And it's what we kind of grow up with. So if we're asked to play a villain in a film, or I am, I don't find that difficult. I don't have part of me that goes, oh, no, no, I want to be the good guy, or I want people to like me, or I worry that people aren't going to, you know, uh, like me as an actor because I'm constantly playing the bad guy. I don't have that at all. All I have is, is the character interesting? And it just so happens that if you look at, I don't know, the 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 Dark Lord in Sherlock Holmes, or Frank D'Amico in Kick-Ass, or, or Godfrey in Robin Hood... Those guys are all the villain, but they're all incredibly interesting characters and they're all completely different. And going way back to what I said at the beginning about acting being about variety for me, that's the bit that I'm interested in. They just they just happen to be villains. You know, it's it's interesting that you took we we actually talked about this before, Shannon and I, about, you know, this idea that the the DiCaprios, the Brad Pitts, these types of guys, they they have sort of a responsibility. I think at one point we said, you know, their their face has to be on the poster. Hmm. So they're so it's like, you know, we're not gonna do a bunch of prosthetics and we're not gonna let you, you know, change yourself too much because you're you're the money, right? Yeah. Um, and I and I heard a quote from you, I think it was in regard to to your show Temple, uh, from about two years ago, in which you said, Acting is my thing. I never really wanted to play leads. I wanted to be a character actor. And if that meant wigs or accents or a piece of costume, anything that would not be me, I thought that was acting. Um, Mm. And close quote. So clearly, I mean, that's sort of been a mark of your career is vanishing. And I would put you for just for me personally on a level of people like Oldman or, uh, you know, Christian Bale, again, two Brits. Well, and two two phenomenal actors. I mean, to be in that company is that's a huge compliment. Um, absolutely, they 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 embody kind of you know what I aspire to in acting. I, it's not about becoming well known, and it's not about having a comfortable life. It's about getting the bug when I was very young to play these different parts, and so this, I just get such a buzz out of creating a character that is not me, that's far removed from me. Who knows why? There's probably sort of a psychiatrist will be able to delve psychologically into me me and work out why that might be. But all I know is that it's it's about, yeah, the leads aren't that interesting. They're not really (laughs) what I'm after, you know? Well, I also wanted to ask, because you use in that quote the term character actor. And, you know, in the U.S. Mm. historically, that's, that's a dirty phrase um you know they, they we, really? we don't want to well i wouldn't say it's a dirty phrase i mean it, i get negative connotations kind of yeah it just it just sort of you know years ago it meant you know you you weren't pretty enough to be the lead or you were he- heavy set or something at least in the us um and there was just yeah. this sort of general thing and and they've asked a lot of actors about it like you know, does that phrasing bother you? And obviously everyone's individual. So some people say, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not a character actor. I'm just an actor. Or, you know, I'm not a supporting right. actor. I'm just an actor. Um, but I thought it was interesting that you specifically use that because traditionally that's what we understand it to be is I can be anyone and I can vanish in a way that, you know, the quote unquote leads or the, or the stars of the picture are not able to do. Um, and I found it interesting yeah. that you embrace that. And, and as a, as a viewer and a fan, um, it's something that I love, you know, it's, it's something that, like I said, when I, when I saw body of lies and I'm like, who's this guy. And then I found out that I'd seen you like two years earlier and just didn't know it. Um, it was just like, okay, so, you know, this, this is a guy that does this, he disappears. And that's, 
you know, as, as an audience member, that's what I'm looking for. I want to be taken away. Oh, okay. uh, and I, and I just thought it was interesting, but I'm curious. Uh, I mean, I guess it sounds like it's not as much of a stigma in the UK to say character actor. No, no. I mean, basically character actor is the opposite of a leading man. The idea is if you're a leading man, you essentially play yourself and you look the same in everything and you're, you're just bringing your own character and personality to whatever role you're playing. You're, you're you almost as the, as you know, you would be, I would be Mark Strong. If I was a leading man, I would just be playing myself all the time. When we say character actor, we mean kind of the opposite of that. Somebody who inhabits lots of different characters that aren't like themselves. For me, it's an enormous compliment. Well, I'm interested in the connection, Mark, between your, you know, you're looking to try to, as you said earlier in the interview, um, and as Sean just said in that same quote, um, anything that, that would not be you. Um, and so, so where did that, it, does that come from something personal in your life to try to get out of who, of who you are, um, or the person that you are in your regular life? Is there, I mean, was, was that a desire to escape? Yes. I mean, I've kind of thought about this over the years and I suppose, you know, I, I don't come from a traditional family structure. I don't, my father left when I was a baby. I've never known him. Um, my mother was very young and tried to bring me up in a foreign country. She's Austrian. She came to the UK when she was 18 and had me when she was 20. So she was very young, single mother. Um, I have no brothers and sisters. And uh, I was put into the sort of state boarding school system very young from the age of six. So from six to 18, I was, I was at boarding school, which is a sort of peculiarly British phenomenon, this idea that you send your children away to school. And in the old days, it was done because you were preparing them for the empire. It was linked to ability to pay. And uh, if you had enough money, you would pay for your child to go there. But the majority of kids in my school, in both of them, our, our education was paid for by the state in the days when the education system was much more enlightened. Um, but I, I think growing up in that environment, no brothers and sisters, no family structure, no home life particularly, you're, I was constantly looking at the people around me all the time. The guys who were in my dormitory, the people who were in my year, um, who was the good guy, who was the bad guy, who was liked, who wasn't liked. You know, I just, I just noticed lots of different you know, character traits in people, I suppose, that I didn't learn from a family environment. I mean, not having a father might sound like a terrible thing, but actually it meant there was no one to emulate. There was no one who was telling me what to do. The same mm. with siblings. There was, no, there, there was no sibling that I had to be better than or I had to achieve more than or who was doing more than I was. So there was no, I wasn't in a fixed, in a particular place. I was totally free to work out what kind of person I wanted to be. Mm. And uh, I think there, psychologically, if you were to root deep down, is probably the kernel of why when I got into my 20s, and I didn't really do acting when I was a, a youngster, I was pretty much it was after, during university, so late teens, early 20s, it was like a thunderbolt, a sort of realisation that that was the thing that I was most interested in. And when I was offered my first job, it was it was at a tiny little theatre called the Worcester Swan Theatre. It was nine plays in nine months. We were doing monthly rep. And the guy who offered me the job even said to me, listen, you'll probably get better offers than this, so don't just jump at this. And I remember at the time going, no, 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 I want to, I'm coming. I, I'll, you know, it was the first job I was offered, and I just wanted to do it. I just wanted to get into acting, you know. And, um, and I'm sure it comes from, you know, my, that background. I'm, I'm probably, who knows? <laughs> so I was curious then with, with that in mind, um, you know, you were headed towards the law yeah. initially and you sort of, uh, I think, you know, you had said once that you realized at a certain point that it wasn't really a thing that you were interested in. I think you were going to study it in Germany or maybe you were in Germany. Um, yeah. what was it that, you know, was it that sort of accumulated, um, attention to detail with people that sort of steered you into performing? Was it that you were like, Hey, I realize I'm, I'm noticing different things. I think performing came to me, um, when punk happened in 77 and I, my, I was developing a kind of interest in music and the creative arts 
and you know David Bowie was a great hero and there was somebody who was sort of performing and making music and was culturally interesting um I think it was I was about 14 and I was just starting to realize I could choose the music that I liked I didn't have to listen to what everyone else was listening to and um I found things at that time that that spoke to me we formed a band, you know, me and my mates. I just said, you get a bass guitar, you get a, <laughs> you get a drum, you get a good thing, and we'll just make some noise. <laughs> and who were you? Which, which one were you? <laughs> I was the bass player and the singer. Wow. And the singer, um, the front man for a punk band. Yeah. <laughs> Are we breaking news here? <laughs> uh, no, I, I've mentioned this before because okay, actually okay. I've realized over the years that was the first taste of performance that I had. So even uh, though it wasn't acting, it was music, it made me realize how much I – kind of that that gave me such a kick so so then so you went from there i guess maybe a different question is um i mean i, I studied pre-veterinary medicine in college mm -hmm. and then ended up as a journalist and now i'm a producer screenwriter so i but people ask me a lot like why on earth did you go off in that weird direction of science to begin with so i guess i would ask you if you'd had a taste of performance why did you you know, choose the rather comparatively straight and narrow path of the law for your higher education. Yeah, I was being a good boy, I think. I was <laughs> I was doing what I thought other people wanted me to do. I wanted to sort of make my mother proud and the idea of being a lawyer, I know she would have been comfortable with that. I think my teachers at school would have been impressed by that. And in fact, I went off to Germany, where my mother was living at the time. She'd, she'd moved back to Germany from England to go to university in Munich. And it sounded very impressive to all my British teachers when they said, what are you doing after school? I said, well, I'm going to study law at Munich University. They were all very <laughs> right. delighted with that. Right. Also in the 70s, England was in real trouble. It was, uh, we had a three-day week. Uh, there was rubbish piling up in the streets that wasn't being collected. We had random power cuts because they couldn't afford to, to run the electricity grid seven days a week. Um, and and uh, it, it was uh, economically, we were having a very difficult time. And I think in that environment, turning around and saying that you're going to become an actor, it didn't it didn't sort of sound very bright. Um, the idea that you were going to be a lawyer and choose um, a career that was much more stable seemed a, a better decision at the time. And it took me a while. I, I went off and I did the law. And while I was doing it, I realized it wasn't for me. And And then I kind of, I just lent back into performing and realized that actually theater and drama was something that I would be very interested in because the guys who were in the room or in the building next to us in the law faculty in Munich, when every time I walked past, they were doing like trust exercises and they were laughing and they were having a great time. And I remember thinking, what are they doing? That looks a hell of a lot more fun than what I'm doing. And I <laughs> went in and talked to them about it and they said, you know, these are trust exercises. We do, you know, a text study and all of that. And it just got me thinking and I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to the UK and I'm going to try that. And as soon as I did it, I, I, uh, I realized that's what I wanted to do. So I had a kind of epiphany, really, doing the law in that it taught me that exactly what I didn't want to do and pushed <laughs> me in the direction of what I did want to do but didn't know it. <laughs> and what, what did your mom think when you told her what you were going to do instead? Oh, she was appalled. I mean, all everyone was outraged. They couldn't believe it. They thought I was insane. The idea that I was going to give up the law and go and be an actor, they just thought that was the whim of a... I don't know, narcissistic child or something. That was the sort of response I got. You know, I'm I occasionally I'll I'll talk to younger people, you know, interested in getting into film, and very often they'll say, I'd like to do this, but my parents will think I'm crazy. Yeah. And I'm just wondering when you come into contact with young performers, do you encourage them? Do you encourage them and say, take the leap? I um I tell them my my story i think first of all they need to know that i didn't have sort of autocratic parents who were telling me what to do i came to the choice myself most people on the planet don't have the ability to be able to sort of indulge themselves in that way they've actually got to go out and earn a crust so i'm very mindful of 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 telling my story to to young people when i say oh yeah i followed my dream um just being aware that it might not be as simple for them. And I do worry slightly sometimes where this, this culture that dictates just believe hard enough in what you want and it will happen. And you think, yeah, it might do. It might happen, but it might not. Are you preparing kids for the possibility that they may want something, 
But it might not happen because sometimes you need a hell of a lot of hard work or you need talent or you need luck or you need a sort of random event to happen. <laughs> well, yeah, I've said to people a lot that, you know, in my opinion, talent is it's it's not enough. It's only a portion of the equation. Right. It's it's yeah. there's so much of it that's luck and timing. And and when luck and timing meet, that's when you have to have the time. That's when you have to be ready and prepared to show what you're capable of. Sure. The other thing that I think a lot of us deal with is, you know, this, this belief that the day that it's going to happen is tomorrow. Yeah. And when you get to tomorrow, it's well, okay. So, so Friday is the day that I break through. Yeah. You know, I look at all the people I was at university with and all the people I was at drama school with all of whom wanted to be able to have a career that would, would, you know, sustain a living and a family and a, and, a, and a good life doing the thing that they love. And I would say less than 10% have been able to do that. You know, it's a cruel mistress, this business. And in fact, the arts in general, you've got to have that luck and talent, as you said, and opportunity, uh, as well as just self-belief. Well, we, uh, um, I could talk to you for a really, really long time about self-belief <laughs> or, or as a screenwriter, lack thereof. Um, but I would, we, we have three more movies we'd love to ask you about. Um, okay. One, if you don't mind, um, sure. an interesting similarity when we looked at them side by side um, between Body of Lies and Zero Dark Thirty. Um, yeah. You know, Zero Dark Thirty made in 2012. Um, you played the chief of the Afghanistan, Pakistan Department, George Wright. Uh, film directed by Catherine Bigelow, written by Mark Boll. Um, your co-stars, quite a list, Jessica Chastain, Kyle Chandler, Jason Clark, Stephen Delane, Jennifer Ely, Mark Duplass, James Gandolfini, Edgar Ramirez, Joel Edgerton. Was anyone not in this movie? Chris Pratt? <laughs> quite a cast. Um, you yeah. know, and and um, both... Uh, both films had a sort of lone wolf lead, um, you know, sort of rogue intelligence agent trying to stop a terrorist from terrorizing the planet um, and doing so on their own. It occurred to me that um, your character arc in this film is very different um, from Hani Salam. In this case, you you come into the room sort of proverbial guns blazing you know the script has you a big man striding quickly into the room with the street role of the bronx projects he grew up in george looks ready for a brawl you know and you end up you know pounding on the table telling people to you know bring you people to kill your agents or they sit there no one yeah. else speaks during that scene you know and this this is our introduction to you and then you spend the rest of the movie kind of submitting to your higher ups, yeah. you know, and literally Jessica Chastain is putting the writing on the wall of the targets she has found for you. <laughs> and you sort of recede, which is a such a different character than you played in Body of Lies. I'd, I'd love to just kind of hear you talk about about that difference and, and um, what interested you about that role and how it came to you. Well, I, I you know, you make choices of various uh, uh movies for different reasons. Catherine Bigelow was a huge draw for me. I, I thought The Hurt Locker was amazing. And I thought she just, fasc she fascinated me because she seems to deal with very sort of masculine subject matter and, uh, and uh, deliver these incredibly intense movies. Um, when I was asked to have a look at that part, that was the speech I was given to, to learn. And I, I was over in LA um, and I went to visit her in her house and her and Mark Bowl were there and a couple of the producers and I arrived and they gave me that speech and they said, we'd love you to, um, to have a look at this for us. And so for 10 minutes, I sort of walked, I was in the Hollywood Hills, you know, next to this sort of pool and looking out over Hollywood, you know, LA and it was sort of sunset and it was an incredibly intense, um, environment from a boy from London I think I'd just got off the plane as well. So I was probably jet lagged and I just thought, okay, I'm really going to, I'm going to go for this one. And I, I learned, I learned the speech there and then in about 10 minutes. So when I came back in and I put the pieces of paper on the table, I kind of saw them all notice me do that because they assumed I was going to read. And then I just gave them both barrels. I just gave them <laughs> the speech in the way that it is in the film. I just absolutely went for it. And at the end of it, there was this sort of silence and, I thought I'd blown it. And then I think it was Mark or Catherine, one of them just went, oh, wow. And I think they'd just been kind of overwhelmed. They hadn't expected it to be quite like that. And on the strength of that audition, I, I got the part. Um, then I got to see the rest of the script because that was the only bit that I'd seen at that point. 
Um, and then I realized how George becomes interesting because he's a product of the system. You know, yes, he goes into that room and he berates all of his field agents who aren't doing the job they should be doing, but he's completely handcuffed by the higher-ups who aren't letting him or his people do what they need to do in order to sort of um, to, to find Osama bin Laden. So he just ends up kind of becoming a bureaucrat behind a desk, which is uh, I found really interesting, that juxtaposition of how he's forced to behave, yet how he behaves the first time you see him in the movie. So you've done this, this scene now as your audition. Are you, is there any sort of nervousness or intimidation uh, when you're coming into a room like that and you're going to do this like for the first take? Um, does it take you some time to sort of like get to that, to, to that moment? Or is it you fall back on like, well, I already did this and I know Catherine liked it, so I'm going to like hit it hard. Well, I've learned from stage acting that acting, a big part of acting is fear management. Um, and when you get, that was the first scene I shot on that movie. And I hadn't met any of those guys beforehand because when I arrived on set, uh, they were all off shooting another scene. So the first time I ever met or laid eyes on any of them was when I walked into that room for the first rehearsal. That's amazing. Um, I think they might have shot the first rehearsal as well. I'm not sure. But yeah, fear management. You just There's no room to be anything other than impressive, I think. I kind of knew what I had to do. <laughs> well, it, it worked, Mark. But you know what I mean? I knew I had to go in there and really give it to them, you know, and I wanted to be able to do that and have them afterwards go, oh, wow, great. Okay, we're in a good movie. We're in with good people. You know, it's all great. You know what I mean? If you come in apologizing, then I think you've lost before you've even started. But I do also think it's interesting that the shades that you have to play, you know, you're shooting a lot of these things out of order and you have to be in a certain headspace at a certain point. Um, is that something that you track well in advance, just when you're preparing the character and you're making your notes and things like that? Yeah, I kind of make a graph of the of the character's journey through the film, you know, the high points, the low points, the points at which he's, uh, well, in that particular movie, being aggressive, the points at which he is uh, unable to, to do the work that he wants to do because he's being trapped in a sort of bureaucratic world. There are scenes where he then decides to go and take the information that Maya's been giving him to try and get some movement and get something happening. Um, you just have to chart that graph before you start and then know when you come to do that scene on any given day where you are um, on that graph. Interesting. Doesn't hurt that you, you don't have quite the same hair or um, caliber of, of suit in, in this movie. <laughs> that you had Not quite Salon. the Hani suit, yeah. Hani has that wonderful line, in matters of intelligence, you're speaking to the king. Yes. Right, right. George is not that. He's part of the political setup. And uh, yeah, I suppose now that you stand those two parts together, you realize that, uh, you know, Hani is the king of his world and George is just one cog in a big machine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a pretty striking juxtaposition. Um, I want to I want to move us now to a to a very different film, uh, which is Stardust. Yeah. Um, which came out in two thousand seven. It's, it's so it's uh, before Zero Dark Thirty. You play Septimus, who is uh, another cog in another machine. <laughs> yes, a different kind of machine. Um, it's adapted from a Neil Gaiman novel. Uh, Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughn wrote it. Matthew Vaughn directed it. Now you've done five films with Matthew. Yeah. When you step into the world of Stardust, which is obviously it's a heightened level of comedy, which almost makes me think maybe it connects to the, to the sort of comic uh, performers that Shannon had mentioned earlier. Um, you know, you read that script and, and the, the first introduction of Septimus is he's standing by a nut tree, a smug and evil looking prince watching a carriage arrive. And that's all you get on the page. Um, did you then go and read the graphic novel by Neil Gaiman to, to sort of see how he's uh, portrayed in the, in the novel? I'm curious how the whole look came together and how you chose to play him. I did go and read the Neil Gaiman uh, novel, but the Septimus in the movie is, doesn't bear much resemblance to Septimus in the novel. So most of the conversations were had with Matthew and what what Matthew wanted from Septimus was very confident, very kind of 
oily, um, evil kind of, you know, Richard III type character. That's what he was after. And um, it's, it's funny in the movie, whenever it needs a bit of momentum, you cut to Septimus on his horse, galloping somewhere. <laughs> yeah. He's absolutely the sort of the heat-seeking ballistic missile. In spurs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Matthew just said, I just want Septimus to be kind of dynamic and powerful. And, you know, and I think he uses him in the movie to keep the pace up whenever it needs it. But he's also slightly diabolical and very charming as well. So, can one be slightly diabolical? <laughs> uh, well, has he got a conscience? Would be a good question. I, I no, I think he's just he's just driven. He's on a mission. All he's interested in is getting that stone, getting the power. I mean, does he have a conscience? He pushes his brother out the window at one point. Oh no! <laughs> so I would, I would say squarely, <laughs> no, he doesn't. But that, but that's a question I've got for you, Mark. I mean, I. How do you read this script and not go, this is just batshit? I mean, what is this? <laughs> you, what, what was your first reaction when you read it? Yeah. I mean, how much of the package that we saw in terms of your fellow castmates um, you know, had been attached at the point when you came on? Like, What was the crazy factor that you had that, or, or was it all just sort of happening at that point? And you're like, I got to do this with these people. I'd had loads of phone calls from friends of Matthew, who, who actor friends of mine who'd worked with him, who said, Matthew's interested in you for this part in his film. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. And one thing I've learned as an actor is you don't ever assume something is happening until literally you're there on the set on the first day. <laughs> and sometimes even then. <laughs> <laughs> right. And sometimes even then. And I just um, kept saying, great, well, you know, I'll wait to hear from him. And they'd ring me and they go, no, no, he's really, he's really interested. And I go, great, great. Okay. just." Let... And then one day he rang me. I think I was... I was in Miami at the time with my family. We were on holiday and he mentioned that he had this film and uh, he, he mentioned what the part was. I didn't know who else was on board at that stage, but um, I, I just wanted to work with him, you know, and I know the work that he'd done with Guy Ritchie and uh, the part sounded great. The fantasy movie element sounded brilliant. There was a lot of horse riding involved and I got to wear this fantastic kind of outfit, black outfit, which... You probably can't see this in the movie, but the waistcoat has little number sevens all over it. It was just, it was wonderful. And there was sword play involved. And when he told me that there would be a fight sequence at the end where I would have to fight the hero, but my character would be dead, I was in. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah. I mean, and, and I did want to ask about that as well. I mean, obviously you've done Shazam and you've done Green Lantern and plenty of wire work. I'm, I'm sure it's secondhand to you now, but I, I want to say this is probably the first time you had seen, you know, green screen and wire work and things of that level. Was it you performing a lot of that or was there a lot of handoffs to stunt doubles and, and sort of, you know, earlier CG? That's me. That's me doing the wire work. It took way too long to, to keep hooking and unhooking. Um, so I, I just got it on and that's pretty much, I learned the whole fight sequence and it's really complicated because um, your head's down through a lot of it at strange angles. <laughs> it's hard enough doing stage fighting when you can see the other person and you can see the blows coming. But when you've got to do it with your eyes closed, you've really got to trust the other person who at that time was an unknown Charlie Cox. Right. Right. Um, who obviously went on to be Daredevil. Daredevil. Yeah. And now the Charlie Cox. Um, but at the time he was just a young boy who, who I don't know how much stage fighting he'd done, but I, totally relied on him because I just put the sword in the place that it was supposed to be and hope that he wouldn't, you know, stick it somewhere where it wasn't supposed to go. <laughs> <laughs> take, take a hand off. Yeah. Well, and also knowing sort of the amount of visual effects that were going to need to be added and things like that, you know, you, you have to obviously have an incredible amount of trust in the filmmaker. Um, and, and, you know, did Matthew sort of explain what things might look like, what he was hoping they were going to look like in, in you know, in, in the release? Or were you sort of just inventing what you thought they might look like? I was just along for the ride. I mean, it's only subsequently, obviously, that the film can be described as, a, as, as kind of like Princess Bride. But I don't ever remember that flavor being floated when we were making the movie I, I wasn't really sure what kind of a thing it was it was just like a family fantasy adventure <laughs> movie yeah you had said that you didn't quite know who was going to be in the film or who was playing the other roles and you know all of a sudden you have to walk into this dressing room of a pirate ship and face off with robert de niro 
in, uh, in, in women's undergarments from the period, uh, you know, when you found out that uh, I would assume like for everyone, he's probably a hero. What is that like to find out you're going to perform a scene with Robert De Niro? I thought Matthew was joking. I couldn't quite believe it. I, uh, obviously I'm a huge fan of Robert De Niro's. I mean, he's a sort of seminal actor, uh, for me over the years as I've grown up seeing all of his movies and the idea that I had to grab him by the throat and start threatening him with a knife, <laughs> throw him over yeah. a table. I was quite nervous about it, I have to say. And, and in fact, when we did it the first, he went, no, no, go on, grab. He said, go on, grab hold, grab hold. Because he could tell that I was just being a little bit gentle with him. You know, this is the man who stamped on people's faces in Goodfellas. But, you know, I was, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was being a little timid with him. And he, he was the one who encouraged me to go for it. And I, I really enjoyed working with him, I have to say, because coming around the corner and seeing him doing the can-can uh, in that sort of uh, in the Victorian in the underwear with the that that expression on my face is pretty much real because it's one of the most bizarre moments in film I think I've ever had walking around a corner seeing Robert De Niro dancing around in a dress. Yeah, yeah. How amazing of Matthew to be able to get Robert De Niro in that movie and encourage him to play camp, you know, the guy who's known for how aggressive he can be. And to get Michelle Pfeiffer, the beautiful Michelle Pfeiffer, to play old. In the context of that, I, and this may seem like a trite question or a simple question, but I really am genuinely curious about the answer. When the whole point of this role is not to take it too seriously, how do you as a performer take it seriously? <laughs> Just talk a little bit about that dance. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think you have to play it straight i mean or that's usually my choice is playing it straight is often funnier than winking at the audience and i think with septimus i just had to i had to play him as straight as i could there's this guy and he needs to get hold of this stone and he needs to kill all of his brothers because he wants to be in charge of everything <laughs> um and the more energy and kind of passion i could put into the how how to this ridiculous thing the funnier it would be i think so i did the same with grimsby actually when i did that film with sasha baron cohen um he's playing the comedy part and i quickly realized that the other guy has to be the straight part and not only does he need to be straight but he has to be absolutely straight down the line you know you don't try and do the comedy for yourself you let that just you let the other person do that and septimus was that kind of a part i think so to go from Septimus, the the sardonic <laughs> and the totally satirical film, to a, one of the most grave performances you've given in 1917. Yeah. So this movie was released in 2019 for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, who might have been hiding under a rock, um, directed by Sam Mendes, um, co-written by Sam and Christy Wilson Cairns, also starring Dean Charles Chapman, George Mackay, Colin Firth, Andrew Scott, Benedict Cumberbatch, just to name a few. Hmm. Um, and you play Captain Smith, who we meet about 52 minutes into the film, and it's your voice that we hear before we actually see your face. And and we looked at the script to see what, what was the first thing that we hear. You know, we're told a gentle voice off camera, and you say, go fetch his things. Yeah. And then I think the next thing you say, do you remember your next line after that? A friend. I think I say a friend. Yes, a, f a friend of yours. Oh, and it just sent shivers down my spine. Yeah. Mark, your performance is extraordinary in this film. Oh, well, you know, it's ironic, isn't it, that um, it's such a, it's it's only eight minutes of screen time or something, but I think didn't Judy Dench won an Oscar for that in Elizabeth? She did, yeah. <laughs> so it's not really about the time, is it? It's about the, the character, the, the moment in the film, and... To be honest with you, Sam rang me and I've, I've done theatre with him. And so over the years, we'd always sort of been in touch on and off. Um, and he literally rang and said, look, I've got this part. It's not a very big part, but, but no one's playing particularly big parts. It's really about the two young lads and their journey. Um, and then he described to me what it would be. And I, I said, yeah, I'm in. I mean, the idea of doing it all in one shot and uh, having a shooting day, which basically required you to play the whole scene with no two shots, no close-ups no different angles, no different lenses, just, just the one scene I found really um, intriguing. And because I have two moments in the film, one was uh, in a field in Wiltshire, the first moment when we get on the truck, and the second was in Glasgow about two months later. 
but they were only one day's filming, both of those things. We, you, you'd get to set, you'd get your costume on, you'd go out, you'd rehearse the sequence 10, 15 times maybe, because there were lots of other things going on in the scene that had to be got right. You know, in my scene, people were moving a tree, I think, and also you had to get these very old trucks to start up and their engines weren't always the best ones to get going. So there'd be some full starts. Um, you'd rehearse it that many times and then you'd shoot it. Um, as often as you could until Sam felt that you'd got the one, that all the different elements were perfected. And then once that was done, you went home. And it was quite extraordinary because normally on a film set, it just goes on and on and on as you're doing different angles, different lenses, all of this kind of stuff. So practically, it was something that I'd never done before and found interesting. But when I then saw the movie, I was completely blown away by it because I thought the concept of that single shot which some people had sort of thought, oh, does it really need it? Isn't that just being clever? I think it totally needed it because it means you're from the first moment of that film, you're in that that journey with those boys and it just doesn't give up until the very end. Yeah, definitely. And and George was just phenomenal, particularly. Yeah, really. I was curious, you know, you you get to come in and really in 1917, Captain Smith gets to deliver what I think is sort of a, an extremely pivotal line in the film which is to warn Schofield that should he actually reach uh, Colonel McKenzie, that he needs to make sure there are witnesses when he delivers these orders. That one line that you have in your second scene has such weight over the end of the film and whether you know these 1,600 men are going to be stopped from going to the slaughter. And I'm wondering, as a Brit growing up, you're obviously learning about the war, how much does that affect you in that moment, in that performance? It was a very moving uh, thing to make because a lot of the guys that were involved in that war have now passed and there are only a few very old men left. And it's very important, I think, that we don't forget just because the people that were involved are no longer with us. There's so many tragic and poignant stories, whole villages, you know, all the young men from a particular village being in a particular regiment and them all dying in one morning on the Somme, you know, and suddenly a whole village is without its young men and the tens of thousands of people that would just be killed. It's too terrible to ever forget. And Sam made it clear we were paying them respect. The prop man really moved me when he came to me and said, look, he said, I've got a revolver here that was used by an officer who went over the top at the Somme. Wow. And it's the genuine article. It's been decommissioned. We're not going to see it in your costume. He said, do you want it? And I said, uh, absolutely. Yeah, please. And he gave me the revolver and I tucked the revolver in my jacket. You know, you never see that revolver. Mm. But during that performance, it just meant that I somehow I was connected. I felt I was connected to that world and I in I just thought that was important because it stopped it just becoming a, a glamorous movie about war and made it something that was very much a you know a statement I would have liked to have made about that time, which is that it's important. And when Captain Smith has that line about have witnesses and some men just want the fight, it's a very human moment and it's a very protective moment. And I was really glad that I was playing a character who got to deliver that sentiment because Sam did say to me when, when he asked me to play the part, he said, you're basically, you're the one guy in the whole thing that's nice to them. Yeah. And it's very important that you are that. And he then decided that <laughs> the first time you would uh, see me, you would just see this pair of boots, boots come into frame. Yeah. And then you'd hear my voice. And I think he planned that, you know, he did that on purpose. Um, and it works very successfully. Your scenes were shot um, a month apart. So that's a that's a huge headspace to have to get yourself into, then take yourself out. Yeah. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you did that for this. I mean, as you pointed out, two really human lines in these few minutes of the movie at the sort of um, reprieve from the action. Um, how did you get yourself ready for that? Um, and then what what was it like afterward? It wasn't actually that difficult for me to just to kick into being 
that character, you know, and also the the costume was incredibly important. It was it was unbelievably accurate. I I, I must have had more costume fittings for that costume than I've had for for anything else because they wanted to get it exactly right. You know, the 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 trousers, the boots, the the jerkin, everything. In fact, my character has a little bit of sheepskin peeking out of his coat, which is which isn't strictly speaking um, uniform, but it was so cold that they would improvise their uniforms a lot. So we decided that he would have some kind of sheepskin underneath his his coat. Hmm. And I also noticed from the the photographs that they had on the wall in the costume department that a lot of the men carried sticks. They had walking sticks, and and I said to them, "Is anybody else?" has anybody else got a stick and they said no not so far I went can I have a can I have a walking stick I'd like to have it and I subsequently discovered that it was because obviously there was so much mud around and getting around was so difficult in the trenches that the officers used to have these walking sticks just to help them you know move about the place and so I felt that with that stick and with that revolver tucked in and with that little bit of sheepskin that was just a nod to an individual I, I felt I had a character, even though I was only doing a couple of days and only a few lines in a, in a sort of couple of small scenes, I felt very confident that I knew who that guy was. And most importantly, I knew what his role was in the movie, that he was this avuncular or maybe even more fatherly figure to, to George's character. Um, and also the, the guy, the level-headed guy who gives him the warning that he needs to help him cope with this journey that he's got to go on. And most importantly of all was Sam Mendes. I mean, when you're in the hands of a director who you trust and who you like and who is incredibly capable, um, he had it all in his head. He'd worked it all out before. He knew what he wanted. And when you're with somebody like that and you know how confident they are, it just completely relaxes you and makes you feel like you're in the right place. I had the same feeling on Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, actually. I just felt when I used to come into work on that film, like 1917, that I was in the right place and where I wanted to be and that the day's work was always um, valuable uh, when you got to the end of the day. What have you not yet done um, that you'd like to do? I don't know what I'd, I, I think I'd, um, other than producing, I was executive producer on Temple which is the show that I did with Liza, my wife. She, she produced it and put it all together. But I, I had a hand in sort of dialogue and casting, and uh, it was fascinating seeing it from the other side of the camera because normally as an actor, you, you, your responsibility is to turn up and deliver the truth, and everything is designed to make that as comfortable for you as possible so that you can perform on the day. You never have to worry about the nuts and bolts of, of putting a show together. Seeing it from the other side, I found that, really fascinating and it just gave me an enormous respect a bit an even deeper respect for for crews and people who managed to set up the scaffolding of a production and actually shoot anything at all so um if you want to just mark tell people a little bit about what the show is temple is a show about a man who gets into an unholy alliance with somebody who works with the transport system the network of tunnels underneath london my character is a surgeon, and when my character's wife falls ill with a terminal illness and he needs to be able to continue research into trying to find a cure for her, he gets into an alliance with this guy and he basically stores his wife's body in the tunnels underneath Temple Tube Station, and in return to pay rent, he does illegal surgery. So it's a kind of crazy premise. And we, we did really well with Temple. We got a um, top 20, I think, in the New York Times uh, for TV shows for the first season. So Temple I really loved. And I'd love to, I'd love to do some more uh, producing if I get that opportunity. Um, or at least being in control of my output. I think that would be a nice thing to be doing at my age now, having been doing this for 30 years. Any, any directors you'd like to work with, Mark, that you haven't, you haven't worked with yet? I'm desperate to work with the Coen brothers. I've been, I've been, when I nearly did our No Country for Old Men with them way back, I saw them for that film and it was between Javier and I and, and, and Javier's dates worked and, um, and I'm sure he, he was much better in the part anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but eventually we'll find something. Mark Strong, thank you so much for joining us. Always looking forward to what you do next. You turn up on screen and I think 
you know, this is going to be a good movie. Better movie if he's in it. This is going to be a good character. Oh, I'm so glad to see him. <laughs> the the, the character—it's almost like a relief. It's like, all right, good. <laughs> well, that's, that's very kind of you. And if you could see me now, you'd you'd see me blushing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might always have a crush on Hani Salam for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know whatever happened to that wig, though. Otherwise, I'd try and help out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right. you, Mark, very much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Character is dedicated to the memory of our friend Drago Simanja, whose life and work inspire ours. The show is produced by us with technical support from our sound wizard, Tim Skoke. Our awesome original score was composed by Academy Award winner Dario Marianelli. If you enjoyed the show, put in a good word wherever you get your podcasts and track us down on Twitter at PodCharacter for future updates. And thanks for listening. <laughs>